please turn to your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, and also we have a handout in the bulletin, and I know it looks super intimidating, but um, don't worry, um, it's, I think it's going to make sense. Um, we have it as a handout. I actually gave this to Brady, and she was going to put it on the screen, but then we didn't know if we were going to have the screen again this year, uh, this week. So, um, but we do, and uh, and but then I said to Brady, you know what? Let's just print it out. So I'm sorry for my weird handwriting and everything, but I'm sure you can follow it along. Um, when uh, last Sunday, um, a little Elias Vinalas came up to me and. Uh, he asked me who my favorite uh, Marvel superhero is, and to be honest with you, I don't even know one. So I said, um, so I, I played it kind of cool, and I said, Elias, uh, let me think about that. Tell me whose yours is, and so he did. <clears throat> Next time I see him, I have mine. I'm going to say it's your grandpa, Lee, uh, because he can do amazing things with the computer, and that's why we have the overhead today. So thank you, Lee. So he's my favorite superhero, I'm going to tell him. We're going to be studying uh, Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> so if you would like to turn there, and then we're going to be looking at some other passages of Scripture. So you're going to be, we're going to be turning to other passages, and so you may want to kind of mark this if you have a ribbon or something. And we're going to focus on um, verses 7 through 11. But I'm going to read verse 1. Ephesians 4, 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. <clears throat> Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might, fill all, he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we ask that you would please be with us, and we pray that you would open your scriptures to us, you would open our eyes to it, you would help us, you would, Father, just give us the vision that you have of what you're doing in this world, and how that's working out, and the beauty of that, and the security that's in that, and Father, our place in it as well. Please be with us now, we pray. Please teach us through the Holy Spirit. Please give us open hearts. Please help us to do your will. Please help us to glorify your son as you are determined to glorify him as well. Bless and be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
it is a very challenge, a very great challenge to preach the book of Ephesians. Um, and one of the challenges is, is that there is, it is so rich. There is so much here. Each phrase is so beautiful. It just explodes into, into mystery and glory and such that it's very easy to get bogged down and to preach it to such an extent that people don't quite grasp the whole of it. They don't quite grasp the sweeping themes and what's going on. Um, and so um, you have, I have to guard against that. I, I, I have to uh, be careful about that. Uh, for instance, between verses 1 and uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 6, um, I've only preached really one sermon, perhaps two on that. Uh, Lloyd-Jones did 12. And, uh, and so he was taking this in a very different way than I was taking it, and he had very different audience and very different purposes and focus on that. Uh, but I'm trying to keep us moving and trying to help us to see the whole as well. Uh, then I hear of people who say, yeah, my pastor preached on Ephesians. Yeah, he, he did a series, and it was three months. And I'm like, I'm not sure you could do Ephesians in three months, you know. And so uh, here we are. So what I'm going to try to do once again is before I really we really delve into the details of chapter 4 and especially of the church. I want to take another circle of the landing field. Last week we circled and we looked at the idea of the body of Christ. I'm going to take another circle. We'll get closer to the landing field here. And I want to give us Paul's perspective to help us to understand this. Because I think that too many times people jump into Ephesians 4, start talking about the gifts in the church, start talking about body life and all that, but they don't see it in the context of the grandeur and glory of what it is. And we almost see the church as just another organization. And I, don't, I want us to see it in its larger biblical picture. And so I'm literally going to give you a crash course in eschatology this morning. And, uh, and we're going we're gonna, to... But I, I hope that in the midst of this, you're going to see how the Bible sees what is going on in the world today. And so, first of all, as we look at the book of Ephesians, I'd like you to turn to chapter 1. And uh, once again, we're going to try to grasp the themes of it. And remember, what we've been, one of the things we've been looking at in the book of Ephesians is that God is working out a huge, beautiful master plan. He's working out this amazingly beautiful plan. And Paul talks about that. And it's being revealed now to the apostles and to the world. And the book of Ephesians opens it up more than any other book, I believe, does. And look at chapter 1 and verse 7 where Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, I could preach that verse every day for the rest of my life. That's such an amazing verse which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And now he gets into this idea of this mystery, this hidden will, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, a plan that God made up in himself. He didn't get any help from us. He, didn't, he, didn't, he, he, or he did this all on his own. That in the dispensation, or better word, administration of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And a better translation of that would be, he will gather together under one head, Jesus Christ. And so God's plan is that he is going to gather, the he's going to unite the entire cosmos, heaven and earth. Heaven and, and earth will all be one under the glorious headship 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, I want you to understand, we need to understand that the Bible's primary message is not how to get to heaven. That's beautiful. That's glorious. I love the fact that when I die, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> Death is gain, Paul says. I, that's wonderful. But that is not the big picture. That is not the final end. The final end is an absolutely, completely restored and transformed and beautiful uh, new heavens and new earth. Christ dwelling in the midst with his people. God dwelling in the midst with his people. His people eternal and, and, and living forever in beauty and harmony. And God is determined to do all of that under the, the glory, for the glory of his son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, he says in Psalm 2. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. Christ will be Lord over all things, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. The Father is going to glorify his son and give him the whole cosmos and unite it all in this beautiful harmony under him. And God's doing that to the glory of his grace. And the church is a part of that. And that's what we've been looking at, remember? Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace is given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Here's this mystery again, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God that might be made known by the church or through the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's this master plan. God planned it before the world was even created to glorify his son and to, and to unite all things in his son. And he is doing that through the church. And he is showing the world through the church. And that's why Paul could conclude the first three chapters with verse 21 by saying, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. Now, now how does the church play into this? What does this mean? How does the church fulfill, as it were, this master plan that God is doing? And that's why I want us to step back for a moment, and I want us to look at basically the structure of how the Bible sees the whole outplay, playing out of this drama, which is the reality that we live in. And that can be summed up under the head of what's called eschatology. Now, eschatology is, is, is the study of last things. That's what eschaton means, last things. And for some of you here, certainly for me, eschatology really was so grotesquely misinterpreted by so many of my Bible teachers growing up in my first Bible college, especially dispensationalism, that I always thought of eschatology as like, okay, rapture and tribulation and millennium and, and when's that going to happen, pre-trib, post-trib, and, and that. And, and, and even to the point that there's this ludicrous interpretation of the book of Revelation that the entire book of Revelation is about the last week of history and the Antichrist and all that. And that's all ridiculous. It's all absolutely ridiculous. But here's the, the, the really sad part of all of that. The sad part of all of that is that it so truncates what the Bible actually does in terms of eschatology, the glorious thing of what God is actually doing now, the place of the, the resurrection, the place of all of these things in that. And so I'm going to give you a crash course on this. Now, we have a whole course on it, a whole semester course on our website, which you can access and follow along, and there's handouts and everything. But I'm going to give you the crash course here. So let's just 
tighten your seatbelts. For the next five minutes, we're going to get a crash course. Everything you ever need to know about eschatology, but we're afraid to ask, is going to be given to you right now. Not really, but close. How does the Bible... See, eschatology is much more simple than people think. How does the Bible look at the world and time and the end and the beginning and all of that? And it does it basically through a structure of this age and the age to come. And that's in your handout. That's the first illustration I have for you. Kids, you can follow along with this. Here, Isaac, here's one. Kids, you can follow along. This is, this is easy stuff here. So you see this age and then a line and then the age to come. That's how the Bible sees all of time in its most simplest form. That's biblical eschatology right there. There you go. Matthew 12, right below. See, see it says Matthew 12, 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven him. Now notice the eschatology here. Either in this age or the age to come. So you notice there's the simple plan. This age and the age to come. In fact, your Bible is open to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul actually uses that same uh, terminology in chapter 1 and verse 21. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, in that which is to come. And so you see this age and the age to come. That's how the Bible sees that. Now, the Bible also sees that these two ages, these two ages are categorically, qualitatively different. They're very different. Now, see if you pick this up in the next passage that we're looking at. Now, look on your handout here. Are you guys putting these on the screen, too? Okay, so they're also on the screen. Uh, Luke 20, verses 34 to 36. Notice the difference between the two ages. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age, so there's, there's this age and the age to come, and the resurrection from the dead, either neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can any they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels, are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So notice the difference here. In this age, people marry and are given in marriage. And the focus there is not on love and romantic love and things like that. That's not the focus. The focus there primarily is on, re is on reproduction. In this age, we need to marry and give into marriage because we die and we need to keep reproducing. My parents, my grandparents, most of my uncles and aunts are all dead. And so my generation is to keep going. Then, and then the generation, and now my generation is the next ones who are going to pass on into eternity. And the next one, we, that's this age. This age, people die. This age needs marriage in order to reproduce. But in the age to come, in the age that notice after the resurrection from the dead, they don't marry or given in marriage because they don't die anymore. You don't need to reproduce the race anymore. In fact, they are equal to angels. They are sons of God. They are sons of the resurrection, and they live eternally forever. And that's the difference between this age and the age to come. In fact, this age is described by Paul. Look at the next verse, Galatians 1.4 who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our father of our God and father notice paul calls this age this present evil age but the one to come is not an evil age is age of righteousness the age of holiness the age of eternal life the age of harmony the age where all of the effects of sin are gone the age of no death no disease no brokenness no nothing it's the glorious age it's those chapters that we read the last two chapters of the book of revelation that's the age to come now next lesson in eternity now are these 
are these diagrams put up there too? No, okay. Next lesson in eternity, uh, uh, next lesson in eternity, next lesson in eschatology is the next diagram here. See the next diagram? This age, and this is the point, this age ends and the next age, the age to come begins with the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ comes a second time. There is a general resurrection from the dead. There is judgment day. Then there is the, the, the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. And so I've sort of outlined this for you by uh, this age. And then you see that sort of uh, fork in the road. Well, the second coming comes and that fork in the road. The sad thing is the fork that goes down those are the people who have been judged and who are being cast out and who are going to hell and who are not a part of the age to come. They will, they will be in punishment. And then I, I kind of forked it up because it's so astronomically higher than anything else. And the NHNE is the new heavens and the new earth. So this age ends with the second coming of Christ and the new age, the age to come, the new heavens and new earth come after that. And that's, again, taught to us in Scripture. Now, look at the last diagram, because that's where things do get a little bit more complicated. The last diagram. And notice here. With the first coming of Christ, with the first coming of Christ, the age to come has broken into this present age. And that's the beauty of biblical eschatology. And quite frankly, it's impossible to understand the book of Ephesians without understanding that this is where Paul is coming from. That the, with the first coming of Christ the, is broken in, the, 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 the age to come has broken into this present age. So right now we actually have an overlapping of the two ages. The age to come has broken in. And some theologians call this the presence of the future. Others of them call, the, uh, call this the, the already and not yet. But we're living in this, in this overlapping of the age. And, and the Bible speaks like this. With the, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're about to celebrate his advent in the weeks ahead, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and with his crucifixion on the cross where he dies to purchase all of and, and to pay for all of our sins, and then with his resurrection from the dead, with his ascension into heaven, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the, the, present, the future age has broken into this present age. And the Bible speaks like this as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, it says this, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. Now notice the next line. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are the people upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are living in the future presently now. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 5, it talks like this. Having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Those powers are operative in our lives. Now, when did this become sort of globally unleashed upon the world? Now, here I want you to turn in your Bibles because we're going to be reading a little bit further. I want you to turn to the book of John. Please turn with me to John chapter four, 7. And you're going to see something very interesting in John chapter 7. And the question is, when, when did this, this power of the future age, when did this life of the future age, when did the, 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 this break into the present age right now? Well, Jesus says something really fascinating uh, in, right in the middle of his ministry, really, in, uh, in, at, the, at the feast, 
And uh, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus is there in Jerusalem. And it says this in verse 37, very interesting passage. On the last day, that, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, John comments on this, okay? And John says this, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Now, notice the next line. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given. And for those of you with the New King James, you'll notice the given is, is italicized a little bit. That's because it doesn't appear in the original Greek. John actually says, for the Holy Spirit was not yet. Now, obviously, John did not believe the Holy Spirit did not exist. But it, it was so graphic what he said. The Holy Spirit was not yet given. And then he says this, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, notice what John is doing here. John is linking in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the world, the, out, the, the, the new covenant blessing of the Holy Spirit. He's linking that with Jesus' glorification, ascension, and glorification. Now, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit actually was initially inaugurated and poured out on the day of Pentecost. And you know the story, they're in the room, and while they're in the room, they're sitting in the room and they're praying, and all of a sudden it sounds like a tornado is going through the room. This, this, this sound of a mighty rushing wind, and then tongues of fire appear over each one of their heads, and then they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they begin to speak in other tongues, and it's so as the Holy Spirit has given them utterance, and they actually, people from all different countries are listening, and they hear the message of the gospel being preached in their tongue. And Peter stands up, and people are saying, well, these people are drunk, and Peter's saying, no, we're not drunk. This is what and look at what he says in verse 17. And it shall come to pass, he quotes Joel, it says, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter's saying that the, the last days have broken in already. They've broken in already. And then he says, listen, what you're seeing here isn't, isn't, is, is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that God has promised. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says, on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. The last days have begun. The, the, the end is, is beginning, as it were. And notice how Peter then recognizes that this happened because Jesus was ascended. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter is saying, listen, you see this outpouring of the Holy Spirit? You see this power that has come? You see this transformation that is taking place? This is because Jesus was ascended. He was given the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, and he's poured it out. And these are the last days that Joel was talking about. Now, let's take all of this back to Ephesians. Take all of this back to Ephesians now. Take this overlapping of the ages. Take this breaking in of, of the future into the present. The breaking in of the power. The transformation of the new heavens and new earth already beginning to take place. And notice what he says, for instance, in chapter 1 and verse 19. He says, 
What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Now notice here that Paul is recognizing that this power, this resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, this power that has been flowing out from Christ, this power that comes from him as the head of the church and flowing into the church, this power is that power that has been promised and has come because Christ ascended on high. And this is the power of the ages to come. Now, this should help you understand who you are. This should explain something to all of us, who I am. For instance, you and I live in the overlapping of the ages. We still have the old Adam body that's falling apart. We're still very much in this present evil age. We still very much have our remaining sin that resonates with this present evil age. And yet at the same time, something powerful has happened to us. We've been transformed. We're being changed. We've been made new people. We've been born again. We're new creation. Are you aware that something powerful and deep has happened in your life? Now, it may not be, well, crazy, crazy, crazy. It may be silently powerful. It may be, it may be privately powerful. But something powerful, hopefully, has happened in your life. I'll give you some illustrations of that. This book just kind of means something different to you now than it used to mean. There were times when this book didn't mean anything to you. There might have been times when you tried to avoid it. There was times when this book seemed silly to you, almost foolish. And now you can't get enough of it. And now there's a power when you read it. And now God's word is coming through to you. What happened to you? What happened to you? Think of worship. There might have been a time when somebody were to invite you to come and worship at a Christian church. You're like, yeah, no, I got other things to do. And now you want to worship. And now you delight in worship. And your neighbors and your friends and even your siblings, and you might even have a twin. And that person might think, you're nuts. What happened to you? Why are you different? And prayer. Prayer used to mean nothing to you. Or maybe you did it to get something out of God. But now prayer is an interaction between you and God. And you like to pray. And you feel like you need to pray. And you enjoy being with God. What happened to you? What happened to you? Your whole outlook on life is beginning to change. Your view on sin is beginning to change. Your view on holiness is beginning to change. You want to be a holy person. You want to love God more. You want to love your neighbors yourself. You want to be a holy person. What has happened to you? The power of the future. The power of the new heavens and new earth. The power of the resurrected Christ. The power of the head of the universe that he has sent. His powerful Holy Spirit has come into your life and you have already experiencing the presence of the future in your life. You have been, you have been redeemed by Christ. You have actually been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment. That's what Paul is saying in, 1 in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And so... You now are part of this body of Christ. Now look at 122. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
the church is the body of Christ. We are united with Christ. Remember, the body of Christ is what Christ is doing upon the earth. It's his, it's his church upon, upon the earth. It is the, these, these people that he has saved. And he is the head, we are the body, and from him is the head, the life, the power, the vitality, the spirit, everything flows through the body because of our connection to the head. And that's what's given to us in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 19 on your handout. Not holding, he talks about people who have left Christ and they've gone to sacramentalism and churches like that and they're into angel worship and all that. He says they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Part of the body of Christ is connected through the, to the head. And from the head, the power of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the transformation from God, all of that from God comes through the body of Christ. And so what is God doing in this world right now? God's mysterious and wonderful plan ultimately will end with a new heavens and a new earth. Sin will be banished. Satan will be destroyed. Satan will be banished. The demons will be banished. Death, disease, all rebels against God will be banished into hell. And the, the earth will be transformed into being what it was supposed to be in Eden. No disease, no sin, no death. No goodbyes, no funerals, no hospitals, no lawyers. Praise God. Won't that be wonderful? No lawyers. Now, if you're a lawyer here, thank you that you're here. Thank you for your service. Hopefully, you're, you're fighting for justice and righteousness. Nevertheless, we won't fight with each other. No suing, no lawsuits, no accidents, no death. Holiness, righteousness, everybody loving God with all of their heart and loving their neighbors themselves and tender mercy and kindness and humility and grace and peace and harmony and joy and singing and, and, and gracious, wonderful thing. That's what God has promised. How's God going to get us there? And the answer is the church. The church. See, God, and that's why Paul said that God is doing all of this by the church, for the church, through the church. The church is, 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 is showing forth the mystery of God. How does that work? God is at work growing the body of Christ. God is at work growing the body of Christ. In numbers, in holiness, God is growing the body of Christ. All around the world, the gospel is going forth, and all around the world, in, in the Asian world, in, in Africa, in, in, in South America, in, in Europe, in Russia, in China, God is, God is growing the body of Christ. That's what he's doing. He's growing the body of Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Preach the gospel to all nations. God is growing the body of Christ. He is growing his church. He is developing the body of Christ. He is growing it. You know what God is actually doing? Think of it this way. God is populating the new heavens and new earth. Think about that. That's amazing. God is populating the new heavens and new earth. You see, the people who come to faith in Christ, the people who come to, into the, the people who grow in grace, the people who are, who are being incorporated in the body of Christ now, we're going to inherit the heaven and earth. It's going to be us and no one else. The body of Christ. And so God is populating the new heavens and the new earth. This is the new humanity, the new man. You should, we should have a vision. This is what the body of Christ is about. This is what the church is and what the church is doing. 
So that's who the church is. That's what the body of Christ is. Now, I'm just about to land a plane. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. So Paul began chapter 4 by saying, walk worthy of the calling to which you were called, because what we were called. He tells us how to do that with the lowliness and with gentleness. And, that. and then he makes this powerful statement of the unity that we have. One body, one spirit, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Unity, 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 unity. He even tells us in verse 3, endeavor to keep this unity. Work hard, roll up your sleeves, fight to keep this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because you are the body of Christ and be united as one. And in verse 7, he introduces diversity. See, because the, 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 the theology of the body of Christ in the New Testament is unity in the midst of diversity. Diversity in, in, in unity. And here, notice how the diversity is, is introduced by gifts. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each of us, as a member of the body of Christ, have been given a measure of grace as a gift, as a gift from Christ to the body, to be used, and we're going to go into this in the future, to be used by the, for the body. And then he quotes Psalm, 80, uh, Psalm 68. He says, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. That's a quote from Psalm 68. And in Psalm 68, it refers to God. God who, who rose up uh, from, from, uh, onto Mount Sinai, and God who rose up to, to ascended to, to Mount Zion, and, and God who, who is blessed and given gifts, and God who's led captivity captive. Now, captivity captive is a, is a really hard uh, translation. Let, think of it this way. He led a string of captives. Because really, what, what, is the, what is the background for this is the background is a king coming into, back to his, his, his kingdom having conquered in a war. And he comes back into his kingdom and he has behind his chariot as he's coming in are his conquering army and behind them is a bunch of people in chains and that who are being dragged because they're the captives who have been taken captive and then after that is wagon after wagon after wagon after wagon after wagon of gold and silver and ammunitions and, and, and goods and things like that and the king is going to distribute them to all of his kingdom and those are the bounty of what God has done and how God and that imagery is being used to, toward God. Now, of course, the captives that Jesus is captivating, and we don't have time to talk about that, is, is all the demons of hell and all of, the, and all of the, and Satan himself. Read the book of Revelation. You'll see that get played out really well. Verse 9. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But he also first ascended into the lower parts of the earth. Now here I've got I've got like three more minutes to preach and I'm there's no way there's no way and I don't worry I wasn't even prepared anyway because I'm I'm not going to do this. What does that verse mean? Well, I'm not going to deal with what it doesn't mean. I am I will I will make some resources available for you and uh, the one that I would like to specifically make available for those of you who want to go deeper in this is Lloyd Jones's sermon Drama of Redemption on this verse in his series. Um, he handles this very well. Let me say what it, I don't believe this teaches at all. I don't believe this teaches that Jesus descended into hell. And 
I have that on great strong authority because Bill said the same thing in Sunday school this morning. Thank you, Bill. And so I don't believe that Jesus did descend into hell, and I don't believe that that's what this is, mean, this is saying at all. I don't have time to go into that, but what I will do is this. I don't even believe that the King James Version, New King James Version here and, and some of the older versions translate this properly because I don't think that this says he descended into the lower parts of the earth. I think that it says he descended into the lower parts of the earth. The earth is the lower part. And in your handout, I don't know if this got on the screen, but in your handout, you'll notice here, yes it did, uh, I gave you three modern translations that I think do a better job. The NIV says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. They're identifying the lower regions as the earth. And, and, and that's what the Bible teaches. Jesus ascend, descended to the earth. He talks that way. Uh, the NLT says, notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Jesus also descended to our lowly world. I think that's more accurate. And then the ESV, I think, does the best job in saying he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. And I think that's probably the most accurate of the Greek translations. In other words, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying that if the Bible says that Jesus ascended after this to this great victory and he ascended with captives and he ascended with, with all of this bounty and all of these gifts that he's distributed, it has to first mean that he descended. And it is. He descended. He came and he was a baby in a manger. He descended and he came to live among this earth. He came to this present evil age and he lived among us. And he says, and now he he has risen and he has conquered and he has ascended into heaven and there ascended into heaven. What is he doing? He's distributing gifts. He's distributing gifts to his church, to the body. Why? Look at the verse. And he himself gave, first of all, the, the emphasis is on gifts. Look at verse seven, the measure of Christ's gift. Look at verse eight. He gave gifts. And now look at verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And here the focus is on sort of the teaching gifts uh, more than anything else and the, and the foundation building gifts. But notice these gifts. Christ gave these gifts. And here the gifts aren't so much gifts as people, gifted people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. Christ is actively engaged in gifting his church in order to fulfill the mission of building and populating the new heavens and new earth through the church, through its apostles and prophets who laid the foundation, through its evangelists, pastors, and teachers who are equipping, equipping, building, edifying, building up the church as the saints are equipped to edify and build one another. The body of Christ is being built up. And that's what Paul sees here. So I wanted you to see this all in the context of the, of the great big plan of what God is doing. And so, dear ones, just by way of application, I want to say three quick things. Number one, the church is central to all that God is doing on the earth. The church is central. Christ has been made head of all rule and authority, principality and power for the church, for the sake of the church. 
to order all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. I'm in charge of everything. Go build the church. Go build the church. Go build the church. Go build the church. And what did these apostles do? They went and they preached the gospel. They gathered the believers together. They appointed elders. They appointed deacons. They established churches. And they went to the next town and established another church and another church and another church and another church. The church spreading, the church growing, the church maturing, the church being the first fruits, the fruits of the new heavens and the new earth, the body of Christ being built. That is God's mission in the world. And there's no other. And everything else fits into that. The United States of America, the election coming up, how we're going to do things, global climate change, the war in Israel, the war in Ukraine, the war in Myanmar. What is God doing? Why is all this happening? Why is God allowing this all to happen? I'll tell you why. To build the church. What? To build the church. To build the body of Christ. To gather them in. To bring in the elect. To build them up. To mature them. We're going to see. It's not just bringing in numbers. It's building them up to be new heavens and new earth citizens. It's building them up into the likeness of Christ. It's building them up. And guess what, dear ones? God uses all of these things to that end. The craziness of what's going on in our culture right now. The absolute implosion of Western civilization. The absolute de destruction of what's happening in our culture today. The destruction of marriage, the destruction of the family, the destruction of our identity. The absolute panic that people are feeling, and they should feel, of the suicide rate of what is happening in this world today. It is absolutely epidemic, the suicide rate and the depression rate. This whole culture is imploding. Why? And last week I, I, I quoted Amir, and she, in her writing, did oh, such a wonderful job. She said, as a secularist, I looked at what was happening and how it was all decaying before me, and I said, there's got to be answers, there's got to be answers, and those answers led her to a church and led her to Christ. God is judging our nation to bring out his elect, to call out his people, to build up his church. And dear friends, we're seeing it happen. People are looking at this world and saying, I don't know what's going on. I need to find some answers, and they're coming into the church. When the earthquake happened in Morocco, guess who showed up? And they showed up with your money. Missionaries showed up with blankets and water and donkeys to replace the dead donkeys. That's like giving somebody a car in Morocco. And all of a sudden, they found this burst of interest in the gospel, this burst of interest in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, this burst of interest. What are we saying here? That earthquake, part of what God's mysterious plan and all of that, amongst other things, is to build his church. That's what God is doing. He's building his church. And therefore, what should we say about us here? I think we should say two things. Number one, what a great privilege. What a great privilege it is. What a great privilege for me to be a part of the church. That's why Paul prayed in chapter 1 that you would know the hope of your calling. That you would know the riches of the inheritance that is to, to the saints. Paul wants us to know how blessed we are. How privileged we are. We are in the church. We are members of Christ's body. We are the future residents of the new heavens and new earth. We are the owners of the new heavens and new earth. We are going to be the rulers of the new heavens and new earth. When there is a restored cosmos, it's going to be about us. We're going to have resurrected bodies. We're going to reflect the glory of our 
son, we're going to be, our father, we're going to be the redeemed children of God. Do you not know that you will judge nations? Do you not know that you will judge angels? What a privilege to be a part of this. And I haven't even gotten to the most delightful part. We're a part of his bride. We're those people. He precious. He loves us precious. Every man loves his bride or should love his bride as precious. Jesus loves these people. We're part of that. What a privilege that we have been made a part. That's how foolish people are when they say, oh, I love Jesus, but I want nothing to do with the church. You don't know what you're saying. Secondly, for us, what a privilege, what a great privilege, what a great responsibility. We are the church in the early 21st century. We are that. We are that. The church's purpose is to be a manifestation of the wisdom of God, the grace of God, the glory of God to the principalities and powers. And they're all looking on right now. And we're it. Not Luther, not Calvin, not Zwingli, not John, Jonathan Edwards, not Charles Spurgeon. We're it. We're it in this generation. And that's why it is our responsibility to be the church. And I would like to just throw this up. We're going to go into much detail after the Advent season. We're going to go into detail about this. But we need to all begin. Every person in this room needs to begin to ask this question. What's my role? What are my gifts? What part of the body am I? How can I grow the church? How can I maintain its unity? How can I build it up? How can I advance its call? How can I help defend against the gates of hell? Finally, I'd like to say this. See that table right there? That is an eschatological new heavens and new earth meal. Jesus said, I give this to you. Take this cup. Take this bread. Remember me. Remember me. Proclaim. Proclaim to the world my death until I come. But I'm not eating of that table again until I eat it with you in the kingdom of God in the new heavens and new earth. That is an eschatological meal. You have the privilege this morning to have the heaven bread, the heaven cup, if you put it that way, the new heavens and new earth cup, the new transformed world cup, the new meal. You get a foretaste of this meal. You get to begin to taste this meal. Why do you get that privilege? Because you're a member of the body of Christ. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. You're in. You're part of it. That's who you are. And this meal is to encourage you in that, to encourage you, to jazz you, to say, to say wow, I am, I'm a part of this. And that's why Paul says, then leave this place and, 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 and go and, and live out your calling. If you are not a Christian, if you have not repented of your sins, if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not come into his kingdom, don't you dare touch his meal. Don't you dare touch his meal. Because you will be eating and drinking damnation on yourself. What right does an unbeliever have to touch his meal? And that's why Paul says in Corinth, some of them were sick and some of them died by misusing this meal. You say, well, Todd, that's not very welcoming. I know, I meant that, to not be welcoming at all. Because I'm going to tell you something, dear ones. And here I am talking to the unbeliever. If you continue in your state as an unbeliever, that harsh word that I just made right now, 
God is going to make that and thunder that with his eternal voice and say, depart from me. I never want to see you again. And you will descend into hell. And for all of eternity, you will live with the awful decision that you had made to walk a life independent of God. Dear ones, we don't want to keep anybody from this table. We wish that everybody could be a part of this. And we want you to come to Jesus too. We want you, God wants you to come to Jesus. God invites you to come to his son. God calls you, come. Why will you perish? Come, come, I'll give you, I'll give you my son. And with my son comes forgiveness and justification and righteousness and eternal life and the kingdom and the new heavens and new earth and new life and power. I give it all to you. I, I am offering it all to you. And if you sit here with a resistant heart and say, no, no, I got my friends, I got my beer, I got my fun, I got my pot, I got my sex, I don't want to do that, then you will perish. And when you're in hell, your fun, your friends, your pot, your sex is going to be grotesque that you gave up eternal life for that. Oh, dear ones, be saved. Come to Christ. The door is open. His arms are open. Come to him and find eternal life. Let's pray together. Oh, dear Lord, we ask and pray that you would work and move in power. Father, for those of us who are here and we're here as Christians, we're here and we've been changed. We've been transformed. We're not perfect. We know that. But we sure are what we used to be. You have done something in our life. And now we see it's the power of the eternal heavens and new earth that's coming. It's the new age. It's the, it's the, the, the age to come broken in. Thank you. Thank you that you've made us part of the body. Thank you that you've incorporated us into Christ. And Father, for those who are hearing that they may be on the outside and maybe are scared right now, Father, I pray that you would comfort them with Christ. Not a false comfort, but with Christ, that they would come to him and find in him eternal life. Save them, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name.